baptisms are just always one of my favorite um, experiences as a pastor and just in community, but there is also something unique about when um, those being baptized on a Sunday are three of our students, and just their sort of decision and witness to us um, as a part of the body of Christ, of their dedication to Jesus, and just the way that that is a, a, a degree of even just leadership for us. Um, so their public confession of Jesus uh, just means so much um, to us today, and I'm so glad you were here to celebrate with them, uh, be a part of that, because we do. We bear witness to, to the testimony that they made, that their identity is in Jesus. They are found in him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, before we dive into the text today, I wanted to talk real quickly about this week's opportunity with Neighboring November. So we've talked about this in terms of almost kind of like neighboring love languages. If you remember the first week, we, we talked about the opportunity to gather together. Uh, we gave you little s'more packets and said, hey, here's, here's just one way to gather with your neighbors and, and invite them over. You could make a pot of chili and, and whatever it is. Again, the the expression, the things we gave you were just sort of tangible reminders. So last week, and when we were talking about serving, you took a, a lawn bag with you, a leaf bag, or perhaps some of those door hangers for the shepherd's heart. And again, the, the opportunity isn't like necessarily that you have to use that leaf bag, but that it would be a reminder and, and that God would kind of stir in us, like where are the opportunities for us to, to serve our neighbors and to love them in that way? This week, our focus is on opportunities to be a blessing. And so as you leave today, um, we should have enough of these, I hope, for every, for one per family to take this with you. And um, this is exactly what it looks like. It's just a small gift bag. And there's a sticker on here that says, with love, your neighbors. And on the back side, you'll see the idea card. And so we are looking for opportunities in our neighborhood to just leave a small gift with our neighbor. Maybe you've got uh, uh, somebody who's new to the neighborhood, and you can create a small housewarming packet and leave that with them, or maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood who's been battling an illness, and you can just let them know you've been thinking of them, or maybe somebody recently had a baby, and, and you can give them a gift that, that they may need. Um, and maybe it's just a neighbor that you've been looking to connect with, and you just bake some cookies and, and put it in there. And over the last couple of weeks, the things that we've given you, we said it's not important that you use these specific things. Um, but this week, I'm going to say, use this. Like, take, take it home and use it, right? So if you wrap your wife's Christmas present and put it in this gift bag, she's going to know you were lazy. Like, uh, this, is, this is an opportunity just to make a small gesture. And, and I'm going to invite you to, to pray and say, Lord, who, who in our neighborhood would you like to, to communicate that you love them and see them by receiving a, a small gift. Um, and so on your way out, stop by the kiosk. We'll have some people out there. We'll be passing these out. Take it home. Pray over it. Look at the idea card and just think, what, what might we be able to, how might we be able to communicate that there's a God who sees them and loves them with, with a small gesture? And again, if you have stories that emerge as, as we seek to do this, interactions or encounters, good or bad, we would just love to learn together as we seek to continue to try to elevate this as, as a priority in our community. So we'd love to hear those from you. Um, I want to 
we're going to turn in a moment to the book of, of James, and James is going to address um, the way that we plan in our lives, uh, the plans that we make. There's a, a phrase, an idiom, that said, like the, the best laid plans. Have you ever used that, that phrase? Apparently, there's more to it, I just learned between services. It's the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, um, which is, I think, so oftentimes true, right? Things that we have mapped out, things that we have said, I want it to go this way. This is how this looks in my mind. Our experience of it often is, is doesn't live up to that, and sometimes it's just kind of like utter catastrophe, right? When I was thinking about this and preparing, my mind immediately went to March of 2020. I was driving home from here when on the radio I heard an announcement come over that the NBA had canceled the rest of their season. And then I think later that same evening, the NCAA announced they were not going to host the annual NCAA tournament and, and all basketball was being suspended. And I knew that these are billion dollar industries, events, like there was a lot at stake. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, like all this commotion that I've been hearing about, there's something here. In fact, we had an event, we had our trivia night that Friday night and, and kind of in the last minute we made the decision to to cancel that with no idea what was in front of us. No understanding, but one of the things that I think many of us experienced in that was this sense of kind of being disoriented by the upheaval of, of how we assumed our life was gonna go and the plans that we had, and then the reality of how that was not going to take shape. For some of us, it was very front and center where we were dealing with the illness itself, Right? For others of us, we were looking at how it was having an economic impact and wondering if that was going to affect our careers or our retirements or whatever it was. Still others, like my daughter was a, a high school senior in 2020. All the things that were in front of her, right? Graduation and prom, and I know like in comparison those are small things, but none of that unfolded the way that we believed or envisioned that it would. The best, the best laid plan often go awry. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to be wrapping up our study of James. We're going to be looking at, um, at the end of James chapter 4, and then spend a couple weeks in James chapter 5 before we, before we move to Advent together. And in this third part of this letter, James is going to speak into a type of planning that is based, really what James would say, kind of out of our arrogance. Or, or maybe put differently, what James, I think, would argue in his framework is built upon kind of the wisdom of this world, like we've been, we've been talking about throughout this series. And he says so because he says it's a kind of planning that is based upon or fails to consider God's part, God's role in the plans that we establish. In the last portion of, of James chapter 4, in the beginning of James chapter 5, just for some context here, James is going to address three specific audiences. Uh, the first that we're going to look at today is, is what we might call like a merchant class. This is a somewhat recent sort of byproduct, most likely, of kind of the expansion of the Roman Empire. So instead of there just being the uber-wealthy landowners and then everybody else who was, by and large, kind of living day by day, the poor, right? Now there's this burgeoning kind of middle to upper middle class 
that, that is buying and selling goods across the Roman Empire. So the expansion of the Roman Empire has created now the opportunity for, for some to really accumulate some substantial wealth. Then in, in chapter 5, James is going to speak to the rich, or we might more accurately say the corrupt rich, and he's going to do so in, in a really unique way. He wants to confront those that would view other image bearers as a resource to be expended for their own comfort and for their own never-ceasing greed. And so he uses this kind of this voice called prophetic lament. It's similar to some of the Old Testament prophets, where he's addressing a, an audience that he really doesn't necessarily anticipate that that specific audience is going to hear. He's actually addressing that audience for the comfort and care of those who are being oppressed by that audience. And then in the, the back or the middle part of chapter 5, then he speaks to what would make up probably the vast majority of this early church, what Dixon in his commentary calls the faithful oppressed. Those that Dixon writes, that is Christians who belong to the great mass of the working and slave classes and whose lives were often made hell by the actions of the rich and the powerful. To that community, James is going to revert back to what he said in James chapter 1. He's going to say, endure. He's going to say, have patience and wait for the Lord's coming because this isn't the end of the story. One day, Jesus is going to return and he is going to set all things right. And until that day comes, remain faithful. So today we're going to look at, at that first group, this merchant class, this upwardly mobile group um, that's economically advanced and whose confidence is increasingly in their own ability to plan and scheme and, and have this false sense, this false idea of control in their lives. And what's remarkable about this is I think that as we read this, we are going to find that James's instructions to this early church feel very uh, immediately relevant to a 21st century suburban middle class, upper middle class experience to our environment. In fact, I think we'll recognize the mindset that, that James is confronting here. At least I, I recognize it. I recognize it in myself. And so once again, our goal is going to be, we're going to stand in front of God's word together. We're going to stand in front of that as a mirror, that it would reveal truth to us, and then seek to go continue to live in light of what we have seen from the truth of God's word. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 13, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter here. Here's what James writes to the church. He says, come now, you who say today, <coughs> excuse me, today or tomorrow will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you're like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. So let's, let's take a few moments here to just work through James's instruction to these early Christians. 
And right at the center, the heart of, of what James wants to communicate to them is this phrase here in the, in the CSB, the NIV and the ESV word this as a question. It just simply says, what is your life? Right, so James centers his line of thinking, his argument, his instruction to the church with the reality that life is short. Life is short. Again, look at the second half of, of verse 14 here. He says this, he says, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If that's not a bit sort of grounding for us today, right, I don't know what is. James centers his thinking around a fundamental reality that life is short. And because life is short, he's saying we, there's we ought to not live with an arrogance that assumes something different. And James here, as he, as he writes this, he's echoing Psalm chapter 39. In fact, let's, let's turn there real quickly to Psalm 39. <coughs> the psalmist says, uses a very similar kind of argument here. Look at this, verse 4. He says, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days. So that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long. And my lifespan is nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. So the psalmist here, he's not, he's not trying to be morbid or fatalistic in any kind of way. But rather he's saying that, that in view of eternity... The brevity is, of life is so short, our time here is so short, that that ought to inspire in us a kind of purpose and direction in our lives. He wants us to be intentional. I was reflecting on this this week. This, this, uh, this week, November 7th of this week, marked 13 years since my dad passed away. And, and oftentimes I find myself in this season of the, the year kind of, grieving there's almost sort of like an underlying kind of sadness that i am walking with sometimes i don't even recognize it but but i i've learned over the years that i, I want to approach this and try to come in it and one i i try to uh think about my dad and his life with a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving like i i really had a great dad and i i wish i had had him longer but but i also recognize there's lots of people that don't don't have what i had and so I, I really look back and I think, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the time that I had with a great dad. And I also try to approach it with this sense of, of, of perspective and purpose, the recognition and the awareness that, that life is short. That's my fake grandbaby, by the way, <laughs> that is, is leaving. My daughter has like that child development class. And we're all kind of, she, she, her takeaway from this has been, I never want to have children. Um, anyways, yeah. Where were we? Life is short, I think. Is, uh, yeah. <coughs> I'm not ready to be a grandpa, I think. It's, it's, uh, the imagery of, of vapor that's used here, uh, both by the psalmist and then also repeated by James, not, not only implies the brevity of our lives, but it also carries with it this sense of the fragility and the uncertainty. 
And by the way, if you've lost sight of this, I'm also teaching her to drive right now. And if you need a reminder, you can jump in the car with us sometime and it'll remind you how, uh, how fragile life is. Um, <laughs> to this, James is saying like to approach life this way is, is, a, is a degree of arrogance. It's, it's, uh, he's confronting in this economically advanced portion of the church that's o- upwardly mobile group And he's saying at the core of it is this misguided overconfidence that has lost sight of one true ultimate reality. And that is that our lives are are short in in the scope of eternity, almost indiscernible. Life is short. It's fragile. And there is so much of it that is outside of our control. And again, James' response, his instruction to this is much like the psalmist is. Look again back in in Psalm 39. The psalmist continues in verse 6. And he says, yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain. So he's kind of talking about the futility of this. Gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what, what do I wait for? What do I do? He says, my hope is in you. Where else do I go? And here's James's, the question that James invites us to consider here in verse 14 is, how do I live today with the reality in sight that I don't know what tomorrow will bring? How, how does that instruct the way I plan and think and approach my life when I have the awareness that it's beyond my control? And the psalmist and James they both return back to one fundamental principle, which is essentially the sovereignty of God. It's, it's, our hope is in him. It's in his view, in his plan, which lay, uh, James describes as the Lord's will. He talks about it as the Lord's will. Look back here, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 15. So to that sort of uh, uh, approach to life that is is unaware of the kind of the arrogance or, or uh, not not thinking about what tomorrow will bring. He says this. He says instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. So again, just our very lives in general, right? He he puts in this category of I need to I need to understand that's that's based on the Lord's will. So he says, if the Lord's wills, we will live and we'll do this or we'll do that. James' response here is, again, it brings us back to, to an ultimate reality. I want to um, talk a bit about this idea of the Lord's will, because I think many of us hear that phrase, and we may, depending on our experiences and, and how we've heard other people use that phrase, it may conjure up for us kind of all sorts of different ideas or experiences. In fact, some of you may have even had people kind of use that phrase in, in almost like a, a, a manipulative fashion, in a way to sort of like um, direct, I, I, certainly, right, pastorally, I have heard people kind of attach the Lord's will to something as kind of like a trump card that gets played to sort of say, like, if you do something else, you're outside of God's plan and desire. And I'm, there's always kind of this, uh, like, cynical, skeptical side of me, if I can be honest with you, when somebody uses that, and I happen to know that it aligns very closely with, like, their 
opinion or their preference, right? Like that, that kind of raises red flags for us. But there is an inherent danger when we talk about this and, and our capacity to not separate it from personal opinion or desire. So the Lord's will is not just some stamp that we apply to our will in order to make it uh, sanctify it in some way, in order to give it credence, right? But rather, James offers to us a response of a life that's lived in view of and ultimately in pursuit of God's ultimate purpose in our lives. And by that, and I want to spend a bit of, a bit of time unpacking this here, by that I don't mean like... Um, some mysterious plan. Like sometimes when we talk about the Lord's will, it, it, we, it almost gets convoluted and, and confusing to us. It's not this, this mysterious secret that, <coughs> that God leaves clues to that if we're attentive enough and we're clever enough, we can find, like unpack the hidden meaning, right? And so essentially when we view the Lord's will that way, life becomes like this cosmic escape room where we're just going around trying to solve puzzles and unlock doors in the hope that we might find ultimate purpose. But that's not, that is not how Scripture defines the Lord's will. In fact, when it talks about the Lord's will, most of the time it is talking about something that is clearly stated, clearly given to us. It's not a mystery to be solved in Scripture. It's a life to be lived. It's a life that aligns with the purpose and the work of Jesus. Most of Jesus' time on earth was spent with a group of his disciples teaching them how to live life according to his will. In fact, when we think about um, the Old Testament, um, the prophet Micah, when he is describing for the people of Israel what God desires for them, what, what does he want for them? He says this in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He says, mankind... He's told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. He's, I'm, he's not making this, this big, mysterious puzzle to be solved. He's saying this, this is what a life lived in relationship to Yahweh, people of Israel. This is what it looks like. Act justly, love faithfulness, walk humbly. The Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the uh, Thessalonian church. He says it as succinctly as, as you can put it. This is chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, for, for this is God's will, your sanctification. In other words, he's saying it is God's will in our hearts, in our lives, in our experience, that we will increasingly become men and women who are, resemble the image of Jesus and who share, carry the message in the kingdom of Jesus that he repeated throughout his time here. Right? He's saying, this is, this is God's will for you. Like, carry his message, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus gave us, and, and be men and women who are being shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. So when we start to talk about the Lord's will, we're not talking about kind of a version of Christian fatalism that, that just makes no plans and gets up each day and just sees what happens, right? I, we studied Proverbs this summer. Proverbs would call that foolishness. That's not it, and it doesn't even, that's not what's modeled to us. We, when the apostles 
in, in Acts and in the epistles, when we see them, they made plans. They're like, we're going to go here. We're going to go to this city. And we're going to preach here, and we're going to see what the Holy Spirit does. And, and they acted on them. And nor is it a tagline that we just attach to our own plans and the hopes that God's going to bless them. It's not a magic phrase that we just get to add on. And thirdly, it's not something that we weaponize, right? The Lord's will is, is not our way to undo commitments that I've made or decisions I regret. I don't just get to plop down the Lord's will as a means to change circumstances that I'm not happy with. Right? It's a particularly bad look, by the way, if, if we do that in a context where there are people who don't share our faith in Jesus. Like, that just seems manipulative. Like, I, uh, um, I went to a Christian college, as you might have guessed, and, and in a Christian college environment, sometimes when it comes to dating, there can be kind of this uh, subculture in there. It, like, worked out great for me. But, like, sometimes there can be this over, like, spiritualized kind of approach to the way we do relationships. And so sometimes when couples would, like, break up, somebody would say to the other one, like, I just don't think God wants us to be together. Right? Like, don't, don't do that. Right? Like, just, you know, we don't get to use it as something to alter our circumstances and, and blame it on God kind of thing. So there is within the church a group of Jesus followers whose affluence is causing them to map out their lives from a perspective that they have a degree of control that they don't have. And they failed to answer the essential question. And that is this, am I willing to surrender my plans to the Lord's will? And when we, when we fail to do that, to that, James says, that is boasting in our arrogance. That, that is pretending like we have things under our control that we don't have under control. Now, real quickly, before we move to this, this third point, I want to just go on kind of a tangent here, if I can, on the question of, okay, well, if I am facing decisions, I, maybe even important decisions in my life, like, how do I understand if God is leading in one direction or the other? How do I think about this? So if, if the Lord's will is more of this generalized sense of our ultimate purpose in, in life, how do I think about these decisions? And, and to that, I would, I would put these in the category of, of guidance and wisdom. And for me, there's, there's three things that I try to do when I'm facing kind of significant life decisions. One, I try to begin by asking myself, the question, what truths in scriptures apply or impact the decision that I'm facing? So is there something from God's words that will help me gain clarity in how I can approach these decisions? The second thing is I try to <coughs> ask how much time have I spent praying and then listening to the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit? And uh, one of the things just to recognize in that is when I do that, um, I have to do so with a willingness to table my bias. Because what I've noticed is that if I have kind of a desired outcome in mind, the voice of the Holy Spirit can oftentimes sound a lot like me. So I, 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 have, to, I have to say, okay, this is, if I'm just choosing here, I know that I want this. I know I want things to turn out this way. And I got, I got to acknowledge that and table that and listen for, for the leading and, and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, I ask, have I sought counsel and perspective from the community of Jesus followers that surrounds me? 
So are there people here that I can ask and that can speak into this and and can begin to help me understand um, how I might think about those decisions? That is a fussy baby today. (laughs) See, these are are practices or approaches that I try to to use when I'm making a decision. And at the end of the day, when when I've applied those, I just come to say what seems best. What seems preferable, but I don't, I don't place on it the gravity of God's will in my life because I've, that's already been defined for me. That I would be sanctified, that I would be coming more like Jesus, and I would be about the work of building his kingdom. And then the result is I try to make decisions and keep my hands open and recognize that sometimes my plans and God's plans don't align. And he has free reign to redirect me, to say, okay, let's head this direction, if that makes sense. So let's wrap up by talking about this this phrase, boasting and arrogance. Here's what James says in verse 16. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So he's saying currently your current status is you're operating out of your own self-confidence, your own wisdom, right? Again, in James' vernacular, the wisdom of, of this world that's really directed about you. You're making plans from you. And I don't know if you've ever had a a situation or a scenario where you've gone into something kind of overconfident, like thinking your capacity or ability was greater than it was. How does that usually end? Humbling, right? A couple years ago, my brother-in-law and I were like, saw some, a pickup basketball game in a park in Batavia. And we were kind of like in that like 30s, maybe 40 range but played most of my life. They played. We, were, we thought we were pretty good. Uh, we showed up at this park and got run off the court. Like, it was like make it, take it. We started with the ball, never touched the ball again. After the other team scored, we, I, it was like 15 to nothing, and like half of us were injured. We had like broken ankles, and we're like dragging ourselves off the court, and and just utter humiliation. And this is the warning that James gets us when we approach life with this degree of, of overconfidence, this boasting and arrogance. He's saying in, in their affluence, right, they had started to take credit for their success, right? It's because of their business savvy and their shrewd deal making. And James calls out their pride and he reminds them of a truth that he's already written to them. All the way back, if you remember in our very first week in the study of James, this is from James chapter 1. He says, for the sun rises, in verse 11, for the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will, pers- will wither away while pursuing his activities. Like it's like, again, do you understand like, how easy it is for us in our arrogance to waste our lives pursuing things that don't last. James responds to this group of wealthy merchants and to the church as a whole, and he gives us an approach to to our plans and really ultimately to our lives that that is a humility that recognizes the rule and reign of Jesus over. Right? So his solution is not that we don't make plans. To live that way is unwise. But whether, rather, rather, what James invites us into is this type of surrendered plan. 
right, that, that, that understands our limitations, right, that ascribes credit to where credit is, is due, and that is able to respond in, in humble obedience when our plans, when I come to an awareness that my plans are out of alignment with his, and I can surrender that. His point is that our, our very lives, our, our heart posture, and our, our mind posture, and our decision-making approach ought to live under this banner of if the Lord wills. Like, it, it's, I surrender it all to him. It's his plan and his purposes. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the decision that I need to make. But if God is going, <coughs> if God wants to do something different and lead me there, it's if the Lord wills. I'm going to leave it in his hands. And then in verse 17, he says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. He's saying in other words, right, to live any other way, to live as if you are in charge or you are in control. He's saying that is ultimately sin. There's a lot here in these verses that this mindset that our culture adapts and lives in. And James confronts it here and he offers us an alternative view. He speaks wisdom into our experience and he reminds us that life is short. It's short. And that, that we ought to approach it to come under it with a perspective, the banner of his will. And when we do anything else, we are living in and boasting in our arrogance. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I do just thank you for um, James's passion for the church, for his desire to see us live these fully surrendered lives that recognize and acknowledge your ultimate purpose. Lord, that we would approach the decisions that we have to make in the lives that we live under this banner of, of your will, recognizing your ultimate authority in our lives, that we would hold to our plans loosely with palms wide open, seeking your direction and guidance, and that in all things, that we might seek your will, that your kingdom and come, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, make our lives about these things. Use us for your kingdom purposes. We know we have a limited time. And God, we pray that it would all be for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.